Welcome back to the Durr Show. Since the last time we spoke, um, Queen Elizabeth II um, has died at, at an old age and uh, having lived a, a very long life, having served as the British monarch longer than anybody in history in the monarchy goes back a lot of years. So that's that's quite a record, um, one that is unlikely to be beaten. She became a queen at a very young age um, through an accident. Um, her uncle um, Edward um, abdicated. Uh, he was a virulent Nazi. He was <laughs> he was married by one of the leaders of the Nazi party to to an American divorced woman. And the excuse for him leaving the throne was that um, he was marrying a divorced person. Of course, the current king married a divorced person as well. It was just an excuse. I think the reason he really abdicated is because he was a Nazi and uh, Britain was at war with uh, Nazi Germany. Not quite, but they were on the way to war with Nazi Germany. And the idea of having a Hitler admirer as king of a country that was fighting for its life was uh, obviously not acceptable. But as the result of his abdication, his brother became king. And as a result of his brother dying at a relatively young age, um, um, his eldest daughter, Elizabeth, became the queen um, back uh, 71 years ago. And so um, uh, she reigned for a long, long time um, with appropriate distinction, not much is demanded of, of the queen. Um, she doesn't participate in politics. She obviously accepts the new prime minister, uh, says goodbye to the old prime minister and travels uh, to most parts of the world. By the way, she never went to Israel and that's never been fully explained. Um, um, but uh, she went to many, many other parts of, of, of the world and, and generally was was a fairly admirable uh, person. I mean, the, the, the absurd people who have uh, wished her a painful death and who have um, made horrible, horrible statements of, about her should be condemned uh, in the court of public opinion. I, I don't believe in the notion, do not speak ill of the dead. Uh, certain dead people should be spoken ill of. Um, um, you know, the old joke about the... Uh, Hitler goes to a fortune teller and says, I want to know when I'm going to die. And the fortune teller says, I can't tell you exactly when you're going to die, but I can tell you you're going to die on a Jewish holiday. And Hitler says, which holiday? And the fortune teller says, I don't know, but any day on which you die will be a Jewish holiday. So um, I, you can speak ill of Hitler. You can speak ill of Stalin. You can speak ill of Mussolini. But I don't think you should speak ill of, of, of the queen. And um, uh, so here are my, my, my reminiscences. Um, I was a young assistant professor back in 1965 on my first trip to uh, Europe. And 1965, for those of you who don't remember, was the 750th anniversary of the Magna Carta 1215. And I was sent as a representative of Harvard Law School. I was an assistant professor um, 20, I don't know, seven years old, um, to go to Westminster and to represent uh, the greatest law school in America, uh, 
at least if you ask us, uh, Harvard Law School. And I was given a seat of honor. I was just a few rows behind Queen Elizabeth, uh, Prince Philip, and, uh, and, and the current king. I don't remember whether any of the current king's uh, Charles's brothers were there. For example, I don't remember whether Prince Andrew, who I eventually did meet, uh, was there as well. I just didn't notice. Of course, we all noticed the queen and she spoke. And uh, we noticed the, 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 the uh, successor, uh, who is now the king, uh, he was sitting there too. I was just a few rows behind them. And uh, in the presence of, of the queen um, and the princes, in their place in Westminster Abbey, it was it was quite interesting. It was a thrill for me as a very young person. Uh, this was at a time I had never met a president of the United States or anybody of uh, a particular eminence, and here I was, just a few rows behind. I'll never forget somebody I knew named Anthony Lewis, uh, who was at the time the New York Times uh, correspondent in England, came over to me afterward and said, "Where did?" You get to sit so close. I was 20 rows behind. I'm from the New York Times. I'm from Harvard Law School, so I get to sit close because this was obviously a recognition of law, of the Magna Carta. Magna Carta is a great, great document of liberty, an imperfect document of liberty, as all of them were. It was mostly, mostly an appeal to the king by the royals by the nobles. It was not obviously a democratic um, declaration, but it became a basis, not the basis, but a basis for a British common law. Um, the Bible was as much of a basis. I taught a course at Harvard Law School called the scriptural sources of, of justice, in which I traced many of our concepts of justice to uh, the Bible. Um, some of them to Roman law, some of them go back even further to the Code of Hammurabi and others. And um, but Magna Carta is among those that play an important role. Twelve fifteen—that's a long, long time ago. Um, and uh, uh, this was the seven hundred fiftieth anniversary. It was quite a thrill to be there. So, so that's my encounter with the former, the late queen, and with the current king. Didn't meet him, didn't shake hands with them, listened to her speak, saw him shaking his head, and um, uh, quite a thrill for a young kid from Brooklyn, <laughs> who most of the important people I had met in those days were my you know, college and law school professors and a couple of distinguished rabbis here and there, but never royalty. So I met royalty. Not the last time. So flash forward now, um, 30 or so years. It's now in the middle of the 1990s, about 1998 or nine. I get invited uh, by somebody who is now uh, some kind of British royalty, Lady de Rothschild. Um, she was not yet Lady de Rothschild. She was uh, going out with the Lord Rothschild or Sir Rothschild, whatever his name was. Um, and she decided to give a birthday party for the um, Lord Rothschild. And, and it was on Martha's Vineyard and there was a big tent. And my wife and I were invited to this uh, great party and um, by Lynn 
Forrester, who was now the Lady Rothschild. And um, uh, at the party uh, was um, a friend of, uh, of uh, Evelyn Rothschild. Evelyn is a man's name in England, uh, of Evelyn Rothschild. And the friend was Prince Andrew. And you know, he seemed like a nice guy. People were calling him Andy. Um, I'll never forget, I was talking to him. I was standing behind him and talking to him at one point. And the waiter spilled soup on his back. And I grabbed a towel to try to wipe the soup off his back. And I was grabbed by a guard and said, one does not touch his royal highness. And so he sat there with soup on his back because I wasn't allowed to uh, touch him. But but we spoke and we got to, to meet. And then um, uh, as a result of that, he asked to come to my class at Harvard Law School. Um, he um, wasn't particularly highly educated, um, but he had served in the British Navy and uh, he was seriously interested in um, uh, academia. And so I invited him to come to my class at Harvard Law School. That day we were dealing with the use of deadly force and um, he was sitting in the back and he raised his hand and I called him and I said, oh, okay. I'm now going to call on the Duke of York. And the students start singing, Duke of York, Duke of York. I didn't even know the song. But so uh, I think they all thought I was kidding. But there was the Duke of York, uh, Prince Andrew, sitting in back of the classroom, uh, speaking with a thick British accent and making the points he was making about uh, the rules of engagement in the Navy and 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 uh, how that affects uh, deadly force. And then the dean of the Harvard Law School gave a lunch in his honor. And I sat next to him because I was the person who was responsible for him coming to uh, Harvard Law School. And, uh, you know, he seemed like a, a perfectly uh, reasonable man. I've never met him uh, with Jeffrey Epstein uh, or in connection to Jeffrey Epstein. Epstein, I think, was at that party on, on the vineyard. And I think there may have been one other time when Epstein was entertaining academics and he was there, but I, I never had any uh, connection with the two of them together. Um, and so I have no idea uh, whether he is or isn't uh, responsible for the allegations against him. I know that the same woman made allegations against me and made them up out of whole cloth, just made them up. I never met her, never saw, never heard of her. So I don't trust or give any credibility to any claim. And I can't figure out why, um, why Prince Andrew actually settled his case for lots and lots of money. Um, and, uh, you know, reports in the newspapers vary the amounts of money, but it's a lot of money. He could have won the case uh, because the woman who uh, accused him had many, many credibility uh, problems including about where she was a citizen. She was living in Australia at the time and claimed to be a citizen of Colorado. In any event, um, he pleaded. He didn't plead. He said he didn't do anything wrong, but he paid money, and settlements like that are often seen as implicit admissions. So I, I don't know why he settled the case. And as I said, I don't know whether he was guilty or innocent. He certainly suffered an enormous amount from that one photograph um, with him with his arm around uh, this 17 and a half year old uh, woman. On the day I was accused, 
I, I didn't even know about this photograph, but I publicly announced there would be no photographs of me with her because I never met her. And you can't make up a photograph. If there was a photograph, that would be the best proof in the world that it was a doctored photograph and made up. So I announced that there would be no photograph, there'd be no witnesses, there'd be no proof. Um, I said, I hope that there were videotapes of every encounter in Jeffrey Epstein's house, because that would obviously prove my innocence. Obviously, I wouldn't have said any of that had there been an inkling of doubt in my mind about my innocence or guilt, but because I knew I'd never met her. Uh, it took no courage or risk for me to uh, predict there would never be a photograph, there would never be any evidence, there would never be a videotape, and there has been none, and there's been absolutely no evidence whatsoever. But there was this photograph of Prince Andrew, and that photograph damned him. Um, it, uh, If it's authentic, and I've seen no evidence either way, but if it's authentic, it certainly demonstrates that um, he was there with her and Ghislaine Maxwell in the same place at the same time. No such evidence exists with me, with other people. No evidence exists that she had any contact with George Mitchell, who she accuses of having sex with her. Leslie Wexner, who she accuses of having sex with her. Bill Richardson, who she accuses of having sex with her. One of the Pritzkers uh, related to the current governor of uh, Illinois, Jacques Cousteau's granddaughter, um, and, and other, other people, royalty, nobles, uh, presidents of countries. I don't know how much of that she made up. I know that in relation to me, she has been just lying, 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 and lying. So again, don't know what the situation is with her and with Prince Andrew. She claimed she was paid $15,000 to have sex with him when she was well above the age of consent. What does that make a person who was paid $15,000 to have sex with somebody when she was over the age of consent. There's also evidence that she trafficked uh, a 14-year-old to Epstein for money. She was paid to traffic a 14-year-old to Epstein uh, for money, and um, her lawyers have admitted that she was involved in, uh, in, in such uh, activities. So you know, this is not a woman who is above reproach in any way whatsoever. But, you know, it ended up in Prince Andrew losing his status as a full member of the royal family. It's alleged, I don't know if this is true or false, that the queen made him settle uh, the case because it was just embarrassing. And uh, there was the uh, jubilee and all of that, uh, whatever the reasons were, he did it. And he he did settle the case, and um, uh, he's unfortunately going to have to live with uh, the consequences of of his um, of his actions. Um, if my case is successful, and if the jury uh, believes that this woman lied about me, it will have an impact on him as well. But you know, my concern is obviously with my reputation and my credibility, not with anyone else's. But uh, I look forward to uh, seeing what King Charles will do. A friend of mine, a professor at Harvard Law School, was one of his tutors um, at, at, a, at a young age and came away very impressed with his intelligence and, and, and thoughtfulness. And everything I've seen of the new king suggests the same. I mean, he was um, essentially forcibly married to a beautiful uh, young woman who he was not in love with. Um, 
And uh, as she said famously, uh, the marriage, there were three of us in this marriage, um, um, Charles, uh, her, and, and, and uh, the woman that Charles always loved and is now married to and will now be the queen consort. And uh, he, he just strikes me as a man of, of integrity. Now, the question arises, and it's a fair question, what the heck is England doing having a monarchy? What is a monarchy? Why would any rational country have a monarchy? You pick your leader based on who they were born to in the order of birth. Uh, <clears throat> it's the total opposite of meritocracy. Of course, Britain has elements of meritocracy and democracy, of course, in its parliamentary elections. It's great, great democracy. And, and the king and queen are only uh, only symbolic. But why have a king or a queen? Um, many countries that had kings and queens gave them up. Uh, others, where they still hang on, they hang on in a completely symbolic uh, way without any real uh, substance. But, but what about the symbol? The symbol doesn't seem right to me. Symbol of a monarchy is that uh, uh, rulership is hereditary. Um, obviously, again, that goes by, back to the Bible. And um, the theory, absurd as it is, is that um, God determines who the royal family is and that uh, the royal family has this responsibility bestowed on it by God. Look, in the old, in the Jewish Bible, um, uh, the priesthood, uh, whether you're a Kohen, uh, a member of the priestly class, or a Levi, a Levite, who was the second class, was also determined by, by birth, uh, by patriarchal birth. Uh, you're a Kohen if your father was a Kohen. Um, my wife is a Kohen. She, her name is Cohen. And that, you know, anybody whose name is Cohen or Kaplan or Katz, you can be pretty sure come from the Kohanic priestly group within Judaism. So, you know, there's that too, but uh, you know, nobody takes seriously the argument that uh, there's something special about being born as, as a Kohen, being born as a Levi, but it's pretty special if you're born as a prince. Um, and now we, we, we uh, are looking at who the next in line is and uh, Prince Charles's, uh, King Charles's uh, eldest son. And, and there, there are inklings of movements in England. There are people who are anti-monarchists. But for the most part, most uh, Brits basically take the position, yeah, no harm, no foul. It uh, increases tourism. Buckingham is a nice place. These guards with the big funny hats. People take pictures of them. Yeah, there's no big deal. There's no big deal. It only becomes a big deal when something goes wrong. When the king is a Nazi, that wasn't a good thing. Or when the prince is accused of uh, improper conduct, that's not a good thing. So uh, I suspect the monarchy will continue and survive. I also suspect that King Charles will be a stronger king in many ways than uh, his his mother. Um, his mother, you know, was very interested in animal rights and her corgis and uh, you know didn't didn't do bad things um she presided over uh some very important uh, events presided in the most technical sense uh 
King Charles was very interested in the environment. He's very interested in, in uh, organic farming. He's um, interested in, 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 in peace movements. Uh, he has a mind of his own. And I suspect his wife uh, has a very strong mind of her own as well. And so it'd be interesting to see how much that influences his monarchy. Um, he's not a young man. He's uh, in his mid-70s, and uh, who knows how long uh, he'll last if he has his mother's genes, maybe a very long time. Um, you know, the queen is dead, long live the king. I, I, I support that. So I'm only going to say good things about the, the royal family, though I'm not necessarily saying good things about royalty or, or monarchy or or any of those things. And certainly um, Great Britain has a, a mixed history of kings. If you don't believe me, just read Shakespeare. Uh, some of his greatest plays uh, were about the kings of, of England, some fictional like King Lear, some historical. Um, and uh, Shakespeare elevated as anything he touched, elevates everything to a higher level. Um, the, the brilliance of Shakespeare that people often neglect is his best characters are the villains because he sees some good in almost every villain. I taught a course on Shakespeare and the law, so I know a little bit about it. And, uh, you know, if you look at Macbeth, uh, if you look at Iago, they're interesting, complex characters. If you look at, nobody knows who the real villain is of the Merchant of, of Venice, but uh, the way it was portrayed back in Shakespeare's time, it would be Shylock who was the the villain. What a comp! If you prick us, do we not bleed? I mean, my God, that statement is so brilliant uh, that I can't get over Shakespeare. Um, just, just uh, whoever he was, whenever he wrote, whatever he believed. Um, you know, uh, when I taught the course, there were people who said, well, he was a sexist. Of course he was. Everybody was a sexist in those days. He was a racist. Look at what he did with Othello. He was an anti-Semite. Look at uh, Shylock. No, he was a person of his times. And uh, I love I love reading uh, Shakespeare. I love seeing it uh, performed. Um, I love listening to it, it read. And uh, uh, it has taught me more about English kings, I think, than reading, than reading histories of English kings. So good luck, King Charles. Uh, may you rest in peace, Queen Elizabeth II. And uh, I hope your, your death was, was painless and, and uh, your memories endure forever in the, in the minds of your uh, children and descendants. And I hope it helps unite your family and uh, May Britain continue on its glorious path um, and uh, uh, interested what you think of the monarchy, what you think of Queen Elizabeth. Send me, send me some letters about it. So now let's turn to a few letters. The Declaration of Independence says the nature of God grants all people equal station to establish a sovereign government. Uh, and then it goes on and on and on. Talk about the role of God in granting rights. Mm -hmm. Jefferson didn't really believe that. You know, Jefferson, who wrote those words, was a deist. Um, he believed in a God, essentially, who was the clockmaker, who 
set in motion the universe and then said, you know, it's up to you guys. It's up to you guys. You make it work. It don't make it work. He didn't really believe in an intervening uh, God. In fact, he wrote a new Bible, the Jefferson Bible used today in the Unitarian Church, um, in which he takes out all the miracles, in which he writes about Jesus, the wonderful prophet uh, and ethical leader, but not Jesus, the person who rises Lazarus from the dead or who himself comes out of the tomb. Uh, after a couple of days, uh, Jefferson was not a believer. Neither was Washington. Neither was Adams. Adams once said that um, in our lifetime, um, most Americans will be buried as Unitarians. What's a Unitarian? Unitarian is somebody who believes in at most one God. At most one God. You can be a Unitarian atheist. You can be a Unitarian deist. Um, just like you can be any of those things in any other religions uh, uh, today. I'm just finishing an essay now on uh, Israel's 75th anniversary, and the issue is Israel a Jewish state. Well, I don't believe it's a state that is religious. It's the nation state of the Jewish people, peoplehood, nationality, but not necessarily a, a obedience to religion. The Declaration of Independence had to invoke God because it was a treasonous document. If the Americans had lost the Revolutionary War, as they came close to doing, not as a result of the Brits, but as a result of smallpox, if they had lost the Revolutionary War, Washington, Jefferson would have been hanged. Um, Benjamin Franklin said, we must hang together or we will surely all hang separately. So when you're writing a Declaration of Independence, you need to invoke God. You need to invoke natural law. Then when you establish yourself as a government and write a constitution, there's no God in the constitution, not a word about God. It was called the godless constitution. It's all about structure, Article 1, Congress, Article 2, the presidency. You know, it goes on and on and on. Um, even the Bill of Rights don't invoke God. It doesn't say Congress shall pass no law abridging God's, you know. In fact, the only two references to Religion in the Constitution is in the body of the Constitution, which says no religious test shall ever be required. Remember, in Britain, at about the same time, uh, just a few years earlier, uh, the British Parliament had passed what was called the Jew Law, the Jew Law, which for the first time said you can serve in Parliament without accepting uh, Jesus. Um, so Jews were allowed to be in Parliament. You know how long that law lasted? about a year and then popular opinion the media went nuts we can't give jews the right to vote that's ridiculous so they withdrew it and they changed it and they said no no there's a religious test unless you're willing to take an oath to jesus and by the way a protestant oath not a catholic oath you can't serve you can't serve in the in the parliament what a radical change when the american constitution said no religious test and when george washington wrote his famous letter to the Jewish congregation of Newport, where he says, of tolerance, we will no longer speak for an America. All you have to do is be a good citizen. Nobody will discriminate against you based on religion. Well, it wasn't quite true for the next 150 years or maybe longer, but at least the aspiration uh, was there. So declarations of independence are always going to have God in them, particularly when they're revolutionary documents. Uh, the Constitution doesn't. So 
Um, you can believe that your rights derive from God. You don't have to believe your rights derive from God. The Declaration of Independence doesn't make you make you become either a natural law advocate or a positive law advocate, because it also goes on to say we establish government to make these things. And then the Constitution talks about uh, how, how to establish the government without, without God. Um, thank you, Professor Dershowitz, for a remarkable half hour. You are a Cicero of constitutional concepts. Well, that's nice. I like that. How brave of Alan Dershowitz to tell the truth. He knows what could happen to him, and his work ethics still compel him to tell the truth. Bless this man. Well, I certainly know what can happen to you. Dershowitz doesn't like Trump, but he likes fairness. He's not perfect, but he's an example to all of us. That's, that's nice to hear. He votes for Trump, but he stands up for constitutional rights. Alan has honor and dignity. So, you know, again, if you're going on YouTube, you're going to find positive things about me. If you go on Rumble, uh, uh, mostly not. I'm going to end with a question. I don't know who owns Newsmax, but I will know soon. Whoever you are, God bless you. Uh, without a doubt, representing a majority of America, thank you for using uh, common sense. Well, I'll tell you who owns Newsmax. It's a terrific man named uh, Christopher Ruddy. Chris Ruddy is a friend of mine. I'm honored to be his friend. And uh, he has developed Newsmax into a phenomenal, phenomenal force. Um, oops too conservative for my taste, but it's fair. It presents me as a legal expert. CNN wouldn't do that um, because I have to agree with everything CNN says. And I don't. I don't agree with everything Newsmax says. I fight often with New Newsmax's uh, 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 folks who run their shows, their anchors, and they admire me for it. Uh, Newsmax today has one of the most diverse, I mean, it has, you know, Greta Van Susteren, who is a centrist. Uh, it has Spicer, who's center with slight inclination toward toward right. Um, uh, so, you know, yeah, I agree. I agree. Uh, bless uh, Chris Reddy. I think he's contributed an enormous amount to this country, and I'm honored to be part of uh, the Newsmax uh, family. And I'm always thrilled when they call on me for uh, my expert opinion on the law. And I'm equally thrilled when they don't agree with it and they argue with me and um, uh, we move on from there. So um, thank you for listening to me and uh, come back tomorrow and write me letters. Good night.